Kukumu is not a phrase you're likely to be familiar with, but I became familiar with it through a friend of mine here. Won't mention him by name, I don't want to embarrass the guy. But I uh, spent some time in the military, particularly the Marines, and he introduced me to the concept of Kukumu, and it's been very helpful ever since. What does it mean? It means clear, complete, mutual understanding. And that, you can see now how that's a very important thing in the military. We need to be clear. Our understanding needs to be clear. It needs to be complete. Can't be dealing with partial information. And the understanding needs to be mutual. If one person knows what's going on, but the other does not, you still have a problem. And I have found uh, that idea of Kukumu to be very relevant in a lot of spheres of life. Uh, it's, it's helpful in a staff dynamic, even at a church. We need to have Kukumu. Uh, it certainly is true when you think about the relationship between the leadership of the church and the various ministries we employ, not the least of which would be the school. And the larger the ministry, the larger the crew involved in implementing that ministry. And so the school has a large staff. And so uh, the, the understanding between church and school staff is very important. Uh, Kukumu has a lot of applications uh, relationally with friends, loved ones, uh, particularly marriage, which is the topic for today. Um, certainly in parenting, I mean, really the, uh, the applications are endless. And so I hope maybe that's already something that you can uh, hold on to today after you leave here is how to get, how to, how to be growing in Kukumu in the various places of life. I'll give you two examples of where this was helpful or made painfully clear how helpful it can be. Um, when I was at my last church years ago now, uh, there was a funeral and after the funeral was over, an abundance of flowers were left behind unclaimed. And um, so I took one and it was a peace lily, quite large, and I had to get a permanent pot for it and, uh, you know, soil to fill the pot once I placed the peace lily inside. Uh, I didn't really read much about how to take care of one. Uh, I just figured it would be relatively simple. So I took it home and watered it, you know, occasionally, maybe every few days. And I came home from work one day and I found that apparently that wasn't enough because uh, the, the entire thing had, had folded over the side of the pot. It was all hanging down, droopy. And I thought I had killed it. Uh, and see, even though it's not quite the same reciprocal relationship you might have with a human being, you still need kukumu. Uh, and that we did not have. I did not understand exactly what the plant needed from me. And uh, it was communicating, was it not? It was communicating it was not getting what it needed. And so um, I found a better rhythm for taking care of it by taking it to my office and would make part of my routine caring for it. Actually survived well into my time here um, until I decided to introduce new soil into it and found out that the soil had been contaminated with insects and uh, that the plant didn't survive. Uh, but Kukumu was a lesson there. Uh, now, <clears throat> that is one reason why this is just free advice. I encourage those who are dating or consider dating, uh, particularly ladies, uh, if there are uh, members of the opposite sex attempting to woo you, I would encourage you to make them do something first. Give them a plant and in 30 days, uh, check out how the plant's doing. If the plant's doing well, uh, then maybe, maybe future communications are in order. If the plant's doing poorly, do you really think they're going to take good care of you? So I, that's the plant test. It's free. Uh, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Another place where Kukumu has been helpful to me, uh, or at least seeing how important it is, is within the context of marriage. Now, <clears throat> I'm still learning, and uh, I, I try on occasion to, you know, apply what I think I'm learning. One of the things that has been a constant challenge for me is an uh, instrument in our home called the dishwasher. I don't know why it's so confusing to me, but apparently it is. And uh, my wife had been uh, graciously, gently, 
consistently offering to me opportunities to uh, serve her by emptying the dishwasher. Um, And that has been a struggle. One day, it occurred to me that it was full, and I remembered how much it would mean to her to empty it, and so I did. Now, I can't promise you that everything made it back to its correct location, which is another issue. Um, But when she got home... I fully expected to hear the words, thank you. And instead, I heard something like, what have you done? (laughs) And I said, well, you've been asking me to unload the dishwasher, honey. So that is what I've done. And she said, was the light green? (laughs) I said, I don't know. She said, it's because it was not and they were all dirty. <laughs> and I, so that's when I said, well, gee, honey, I would have noticed, but you're so good at cleaning them before placing them in the dishwasher <laughs> that I, I couldn't tell. That didn't help much, uh, <laughs> nor did it help that um, when she proceeded to ask me where those items were, I had no idea. Suffice it to say, we may have left the room pretending like it never happened. Uh, And I don't know that I've unloaded it since. So, mission accomplished, I guess. Uh, Kukumu, we didn't have it. Thought we did. Um, um, One verse, one verse for today. I'll be honest with you, when I... Looked at the preaching schedule a couple months back. We do plan in advance. And I noticed that I was tentatively slated to cover this one verse. I looked at the one verse and I thought, well, that's pretty simple. How am I going to construct a full sermon out of that? So at our staff meeting with Pastor Scott, I began to say, you know, you only scheduled me to preach on one verse. And before I could say, I didn't know how I'd construct a full message out of that, he interrupted me by saying, yeah, and don't you think it's a sufficient verse for one full message? (laughs) To that I said, yes, I do. (laughs) Kukumu. I think I see that now. Uh, and, and the reason for that is I believe this, to, to rightly understand this verse, now I say, that, I say that acknowledging that I could still be getting aspects of it wrong, but I think a right way to approach this verse is within context. And that would be true of any verse that we study in Scripture, but this one particularly, I think, is, uh, is relevant to that. So there's a few things that we need to keep in mind. First of all, this is a letter a letter written by Peter. And here's the thing. When Peter wrote this letter and sent it around, I highly doubt that the letter was read a few sentences at a time once per week. That's what we're doing. That is not what they did. They would have read the letter in its entirety in the moment. A lot of times that was actually done in the context of people's homes. Uh, We've got to remember this is a time of persecution, so much of the church was gathered in people's homes. Letters, the the full letter would have been read and perhaps discussion ensued, and I'm sure the letter would have been revisited over and over. But when we do what we do and we we separate out a few verses at a time, and I understand why we do that, but then we do it once per week because that's when our corporate meetings are. If we aren't careful then to continue thinking through those lines throughout the week and the greater context throughout the week, we can begin to disconnect all these individual pieces from the greater whole. And that's where I think we fall into misapplication and misinterpretation. That's not just true for a single letter, but if we were to sever a letter from the context of the newer Old Testament or separate it from the greater whole of God's revealed word. And so it's important to keep that in mind. This is a letter, and it would have been read in one setting initially, and, and so with that in mind, there's a, there's a couple things that I think we need to just kind of come back 
to square one on before we take a look at 1 Peter 3, 7. We want to remember that the context for this book, this letter, is suffering. And that, that is the circumstances. Those are the circumstances in which Peter's audience find themselves. Uh, we, we can't speak necessarily to the degree of suffering, but we do know that the times were getting very difficult. Uh, there's an argument about if we're at a time, we, we believe roughly that Nero had risen to power by this time, but there's some who believe that earlier in his tenure, he was less insane and, um, and beastly towards those who opposed him and later on became more so. Uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure, but we do know that, that, that certainly the grip of the Roman Empire was tightening. The tolerance for Christianity was decreasing. And so these people are finding themselves in a time of suffering and persecution. Now, I think that's important because of what Peter does when he starts this book. When he starts the book in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1, after he introduces himself, he reminds them of the bigger story. I think that's important because obviously Peter has done it for a reason under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what he does is not uncommon to other writers of the New Testament who would often do the same thing. They might be seeking to address a specific issue, but they first remind their audience of the bigger story rather than get straight to their moment. And that's an important thing to understand because we're all today living in a moment. And there are certain challenges in our cultural moment. But we can't live as people who are severed from the bigger story God is writing. When we disconnect the two, that's when uh, we make our hardships worse. That's when we can do things like complain, grumble, despair, become bitter. When we separate our moment from the bigger story. You see, God has been about doing a thing long before we came along. And should he delay returning long enough, he will continue doing a thing long after you and I are gone. We're, we're in a moment of that story. Peter reminds them of that in verses 3 through 9 in chapter 1, if you'd read it with me. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and fading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this truth, this wonderful truth of your salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's speaking to a group of people that are undergoing a great deal of suffering. And before he even touches that, he says, you need to remember. This is not it. This is one chapter of a great story that God has been writing. It's important, brothers and sisters, that we do the same. There's the temptation to get consumed by our cultural moment. And then we begin living as people without hope. That happens because our hope is grounded in the larger story. And so what Peter's doing, whether his audience may have realized or not, he was ministering to their souls by reminding them about that bigger story. It occurred to me while we were singing together that um, the, the last song we sang, the last hymn we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that, that near the end, it said, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. That hymn is reminding us of the bigger story. Where do we get our strength for today? The bright hope that we have for tomorrow. 
it occurred to me then that must be one reason why we gather every Sunday and why we must. Because Monday through Saturday, we're battling the cultural moment. When we gather on Sunday morning, we pause to remember the bigger story. And that has to be firmly in our minds as we proceed through the rest of the letter. Paul then in chapter 2, verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, which wage war against your soul. You know, the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul are what we encounter all the time. And, and, and those battles, that war rages all the more when we're going through suffering. That suffering reveals things within us that sometimes we'd prefer to ignore. Suffering often shows us how selfish we are. But he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now what he's doing is after reminding them of the bigger story, he is rooting them in their ultimate identity. That identity is you are not simply citizens of this earth. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Your home is not here. It's there. You're exiles. Sometimes our suffering comes as the result of becoming too comfortable here. Treating this like our home. But it's not. We're just passing through it. It's an important to understand that. Thirdly, in the very next verse, in verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a lot like Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven. That theme's in Scripture all over. You see... There's a tendency, if we don't wage war well against our passions, if we don't root our identity in, into the truth that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and therefore sojourners and exiles here, and if we aren't constantly remembering that this is all part of a bigger story, it's not just this cultural moment, our conduct may not be very honorable. But if we do remember those things, then it can be. And Peter doesn't say when they might speak against you as evildoers. He said when they do. I think it's very likely we'll encounter that kind of resistance. But he says when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see that honorable conduct and perhaps be won by it. Maybe God will use that to open their eyes to the truth. So, so our, the way we suffer becomes an evangelistic opportunity. That's how it should be. And then fourth, he says we need to be subject, we need to subject ourselves, submit to human institutions for the Lord's sake. This is chapter 2, verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or in verse 14, to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so Paul takes and he starts to address some of the more immediate contexts for our suffering. It can be in the, in the context of the, the, the governor and the governed, or in the context of the employer and the employee, right? Those are the first two he tackles, suffering under the institution of government and suffering under the institution of employment. Isn't it interesting that in, in each of those cases, there's room for the possibility, certainly in the employer section, there's the possibility that, that their conduct towards the employee is not fair, but that didn't change the rules, Remember the people who were in power at the time when, when Peter was encouraging them to submit themselves to the government. It was not exactly a government who was friendly to Christianity. But that didn't change the rules. Because our suffering becomes an opportunity for evangelism. When we resist that, we lose the opportunity. 
And there's a reason we do this. There's a reason we, we so counterculturally live in these relationships in the way that Paul is commanding us to live. It's because we don't do it for our sake. We do it for whose? The Lord's sake. So <clears throat> listen, he's reminded them of the bigger story. He's rooted them in their ultimate identity. And now he's reminding them it's not about you. Imagine that. You're in this time of intense hardship and persecution, and the, and the apostle who's freshly sent you a letter, you crack that thing open. First of all, it seems like he takes forever to get to what you're dealing with. And then he basically says, this isn't about you. Remember that. It's about God. It's about the story he's writing. It's about his glory. You do these things, you do these difficult things, these countercultural things, these things that are contrary to your flesh. You do these things for his sake, his sake. And you do this because you are not a people without hope. You have hope. You have hope that this isn't it. You have hope of what's to come. So you get your strength for today. Because of your bright hope for tomorrow. It's as though he would understand maybe the difficulty with which his audience is receiving this letter. By the way, his primary audience is clearly believers. Clearly believers. And perhaps sensing that through the Holy Spirit, he then moves to Jesus' example of suffering. Another reminder. And so in verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2, he says this, For to, to this you have been called. You might be thinking, you know, many of us maybe at different times, you know, wonder, you know, what, what is our calling? What, is, what does God want us to do? There are many times in Scripture where God seems to make it quite plain. What is this, uh, this that we're called to? It's, it's suffering in this respect. In the context of these institutions that he's describing. In verse 21 he says. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Why? To leave you an example. Why? So that you might follow in his steps. And sometimes I think that we struggle. Myself included. To remember. Whose steps we are following. And where that led. We, we, we profess to follow a person who was crucified. We should not be surprised if suffering is in our own path. I mean, we lift up a symbol of death. So don't forget, he's telling his audience, Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He did this to leave you an example so that you would follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. If anyone knows what it's like in its fullness to suffer unjustly, it's Jesus. More than anyone else. You know, and how many times do we get tempted to to, to complain and grumble about the injustices that we perceive we are suffering in this life and they pale in comparison to what he experienced. He knows. But catch verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What if our social media profiles matched that idea? That when we are reviled, we don't revile others. That when we are suffering, we don't threaten. But we just entrust ourselves to God. And his sovereignty. And his goodness to us. You see, what Peter's doing is he's describing what it looks like to live honorably among Gentiles. 
You do it by submitting to the leaders that God has allowed to come into power. And let's be honest. Can I just be honest with you for a second? At least in my own life, I'll just speak for myself. I'll, I'll play it safe. I, a lot of times, want to gripe and complain about the, you know, I, I, what, I'm, what I think I'm wrestling with is the person in power. What I'm really wrestling with is the God I worshipped allowed them into power. Maybe it's a bad boss, but the rules don't change. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what this is all about. It's about living righteously. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so then Peter takes a moment again to share the gospel. And to remind them of what Jesus has done and the example that he's left. Now, this is so important because the very next thing that Peter addresses, as we learned last week, is marriage. Firstly, in verses 1 through 6, the role of the wife. But, the, but he begins by saying in chapter 3, verse 1, likewise. It's important to understand that he's referring back to what he just said about Jesus. Jesus suffered. And yet he didn't revile, he didn't threaten, he just entrusted himself to the Lord. And he left this as an example for you to follow. So like him, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now it's interesting, keep in mind, his primary audience is clearly believers. That when he goes on to say, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be one without a word by the conduct of our wives. Peter's leaving room for the possibility that, an, uh, that a believing wife is married to an unbelieving husband. But that doesn't mean that what he's saying doesn't apply to a believer in a believer relationship. He's simply leaving room for the, the, the possibility that that may not always be the case. So if an unbelieving wife or a believing wife finds herself married to an unbelieving husband, just like the employer-employee situation and the government-governed situation, be, just because the dynamic is not the biblical ideal, the rules don't change. You see the consistency? And you got to remember, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer unjustly, to be the victim of unfairness. So, then we get to verse 7. He uses likewise again. I think this is again critical because he's not referencing directly back to verses 1 through 6, but chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. So likewise, wives, as Jesus suffered and gave an example, so you be subject to your husbands. Likewise, husbands, just as Jesus suffered and left an example for you, what does he say? Live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now I think we've got the full context. And it leads us to our first big question of two. Number one, how does a Christian husband live with his wife in an understanding way? I believe Peter answers that himself by saying, showing honor to her. You, you live with your wife in an understanding way. That word understanding could also be like being considerate, to consider her. And the way you consider her, the way you be considerate, the way you live with her in an understanding way is by showing honor to her. And that, that word honor can mean a lot of different things. But we're talking about companionship and respect. That, that you're, there's a partnership here, but it's one that's filled with respect and admiration. And so what does that look like in practicality? Well, unfortunately, Peter didn't give us a lot of additional details, but that's where the Bible becomes very helpful and that there's more than just 1 Peter. So I'd like to look to his colleague, Paul, when he shared some things to husbands 
In 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It's simply a reminder to husbands, the buck does not stop with you. You are one rung lower than many of us tend to think. God is our head. And so we live with our wives in an understanding way out of submission to him and the institution of marriage that he's created. So men in the room, you still need to practice submission. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5, Starting in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Love your wives. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So there's a nourishing and cherishing going on in this, this way of showing honor to our wives and living with them in an understanding way. He concludes by saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Another way of understanding that is, is men, you should be living in a way where it's easy for your wife to respect you. You should not make that difficult. And the way you make that easy is by loving her as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. And so we're called to a life of giving ourselves up for our wives. In Colossians 3.19, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the way of honoring them, that companionship and, and respect in that relationship is by not being harsh, but rather by being gentle and kind. And so when I think of these things, I start thinking of other places in Scripture that we wouldn't necessarily, in the forefront of our minds, immediately apply to the context of marriage. But I think it's important, whenever we encounter, particularly in the New Testament, language about how we should conduct ourselves with other people, I would encourage you to always take that home. Your wives and your children, run those principles home. And so some of those principles are as follows. Loving our wives, 1 Corinthians 13. Men, I would encourage you, when's the, or ask you, when's the last time you assessed your love for your wife based on its definition in 1 Corinthians 13? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you, or are you seeking your own way? Boastful, proud? See, love, love is not those things according to verse Corinthians 13. What about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Are those accurate descriptors of your conduct towards your wife? Your conduct and speech, are they edifying like Ephesians 4 says they will be? one of the one another passages of the New Testament, but one of, one of the most distinct and important others God has given you, men, is your wife. Run these principles home. Lastly, Philippians 2, in talking about humility and service, are we seeking the interests of others above ourselves? Again, one of the most distinct and important others God has given you, men, is your wife. And so are you seeking the, her interests above your own? Now, men, 
Do you understand why this might cause some suffering? It's not about you. You're not doing this for your sake. And you know what? You're not even ultimately doing it for hers. You're doing it for whose sake? The Lord's, who knows what it's like to suffer. And it's his steps you have committed to follow. This is what it looks like in practice. Second question, why should a Christian husband show honor to his wife? Well, you could say because the Bible says so. I understand. But I think Peter gives us a little bit more. In fact, I think he gives us two more. He says, number one, that she is in error with you of the grace of life. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, you skipped over the most controversial part of that verse. Well, I don't think it's very controversial. And that would be the term weaker vessel. So let's pause for a moment so that I can explain. Because of what we know about God and his word and the value he's placed on human beings as image bearers and the fact that, that, that he loves us and, and that he shows grace and mercy to us and he's not a respecter of persons. Because we know all these things about his character, it therefore simply does not make sense that weaker vessel means anything like intellectually inferior uh, inferior in capability or worth or even emotionally. And men, some of you struggle with that and you need to stop. Because I don't think that's in the language here in this text either. How your wife chooses to express emotions differs from how you express emotions and you do express them. And part of living with her in an understanding way is, is learning that about her. And so what does it mean? Well, <clears throat> makes most sense within the context of Scripture to mean, I think, possibly two things. One, clearly in God's design, uh, God's design in creation, specifically just genetic constructs and those kinds of things, men tend to be physically stronger. I do think that's true. I actually don't think that's the best application, but I could be wrong. I think the best application for weaker vessel here is Let's remember the context. It's the institution of marriage. In each of the institutions that Peter describes, government, employer, employee, marriage, there's a hierarchy. The same is true in marriage. Husband, then wife. So the wife has been placed in a weaker position in the hierarchy of the institution of marriage. Now, certainly in the eyes of the unbelieving world, as they look at your marriage functioning that way, they might conclude that she's a weak person. But you men need to understand that it's your job to show honor to her. Even though she's been placed in this weaker position institutionally. I happen to believe that's the best application of that wording. I think the greater question, however, is what does it mean that she's an heir with you of the grace of life? And I think Peter can answer that question honestly. In verses 3 through 5 again of chapter 1, I have it on the screen for you. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's an inheritance Peter began his letter talking about. And he was addressing heirs of that inheritance. That's how it works. Typically, you're no longer considered an heir, so to speak, once you've received what you're owed. But God says, through Christ's sacrifice, through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, we become joint heirs with him for all things. Are we yet in possession of that inheritance? We are not. And so we are heirs with hope of what's been promised to us. That's what Peter's talking about when he starts his letter. Furthermore, in verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that grace? Our salvation being made complete. Our full redemption. That's where our hope is found, right? 
That's what Peter means when he uses that word. And so, so I believe that when, when Peter's talking about her being an heir, a fellow heir of the grace of life, I believe it makes most sense just within the context of this letter that he's talking about salvation. And that men, those of you who have believing wives, you need to be daily acknowledging her as a co-heir. That in the kingdom of heaven, there's none of that human stratification of, of you know, authority or worth or whatever. We're, we're, we're co-equal in God's kingdom. You need to be daily, daily acknowledging that about her. She's an heir of the grace of life. There are some, and frankly, they're, they're more knowledgeable and experienced than I am, who believe that what Peter's talking about there is that uh, it's, it's the grace of the institution of marriage. And that the husband and wife are fellow recipients of that gracious gift of God called marriage. And I, I can see how uh, you could understand it that way. I just don't happen to believe that quite does it. So I would say this. It doesn't mean less than that. I just think it means more. We are co-recipients of the gift of marriage. But if our wives should come to know the Lord, men, I believe it begins to mean so much more. Now, why should we show honor to our wife? Well, one, she's a joint heir, a co-heir of the grace of life. But number two, so that his prayers are not hindered. And this is just a, it's a mysterious thing to me, but, it, but it's not only in, mentioned again in this letter, but it's all, also in other places of scripture. So in 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12, he says, he quotes from Psalms here. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, so God's acting upon our prayers with him seems, seems to have a correlating relationship with our conduct. Can I explain that fully? No. But it seems to be the case. He'll reference it again in 1 Peter 4, 7 to 9. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So, man, all I can say is this. If we fail to show honor to our wives as we've been instructed to in God's word, Scripture is teaching that our prayers with God will be hindered. And if you sense that's been taking place in your life, then my question for you is, have you assessed your conduct with your wife? It matters. Men, it matters. It matters so much that how God interacts with our prayers changes based on our behavior towards her. So if I could sum this up in one statement, I would say this. A Christian husband lives with his wife in an understanding way by showing honor to her, knowing two things. Knowing she is a fellow heir of God's grace and that his prayers will be hindered should he fail. Man, I don't know about you, but I think that's a tall order. And if you don't feel the weight of that, let me suggest you pay special attention to the application. Which I would suggest uh, the following, and I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, the first three come from the English Standard Version Men's Bible. And I thought these were pretty good. So, men, regularly ask your wife how she believes you can better live with her in an understanding way. Now, let me challenge you with something. If you're going to ask her this question, say nothing. Don't interrupt. Don't rationalize. Don't excuse. Don't justify. Don't defend yourself. 
Ladies, I'm right, right? Just listen. And, and men, we have a tendency to do that. I mean, with criticism in general, you, you and I both know it's true. Our ego, our pride, we just want to respond. We want to react. But, 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 but. Just stop. Because the thing is, if you do that, it'll be very self-defeating. Your wife may say, see, this is what I'm talking about. You're not demonstrating understanding and honor. Just listen. And frankly, she might be impressed if then you say, I'd like to ponder these things before I respond to you. Is that okay? So ask her that question. Study your wife. You know, again, that word understanding kind of means to consider, to study. I appreciated something that Rick Thomas mentioned several times last weekend. He would use the phrase, exegete your wife. Study her. Seek to understand her. You should know your wife better than anyone else. What does she like and dislike? What are her deepest fears and aspirations? And this is, this is pointed, but I think helpful. It goes on to say, it is shameful if you know and care more about players on your favorite football team than you do about your wife. Ouch. Because there, you know, we could, we could start to finish. Uh, just start talking about all the details and intricacies of whatever our personal interests or hobbies are. But you ask the same guy what he would do to come up with what he think would be a home run evening for his wife and he's shooting blanks. That's a problem. Study your wife. Thirdly, devote time to your wife. Time is the most valuable, humanly speaking, the most valuable commodity I believe we've been given. And time is what this is going to take. Do you plan, do you regularly plan to set aside time to have unhurried, distraction-free conversations? Set the phone aside. Enjoy the moment with your wife. Give her your time. Does she feel like you delight to study her? I added this one. Invite accountability regarding how you treat your wife. Because men, we need it. We need accountability. Real accountability. We need people who are going to really hold our feet to the fire. Who are going to ask us hard questions about how we're treating our wives. And so I'd encourage you to invite that accountability in your life. But men, I also want to suggest that one of your greatest accountability assets is your wife. And so I think it's great. We actually encourage men to have male accountability partners. But perhaps that accountability partner of yours would be well served by having a conversation with your wife on how you're doing. Invite that accountability. This is a tall order, a great task. And men, we've, we just, we have this pendulum problem sometimes, you know, where if we're not careful, we can, we can be well into our marriage and we're still treating our wives like our mothers. They make our meals heal our boo-boos, make us feel good when our feelings have been hurt by somebody at work. But they're not our mom. They're our wife. Sometimes we swing too far the other way and we reduce our role to being simply a good provider. And there's certainly something biblically admirable about providing for your wife and family but just as I said about another concept earlier, our role as husband is certainly no less than that. It certainly is much more. We're much more than 
people who make money. And so let's go to God's word, seek his face, admit our utter dependency upon him to enable us to accomplish this task, and let us remember there's a bigger story. We are sojourners and exiles. Our suffering is an opportunity for evangelism. And we do this for the Lord's sake, not our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time you've given us to be here today. Thank you for your word and your graciousness and teaching it to us. God, it is, uh, your word is both true and gracious. And so we thank you for being loving to us in that way. God, I pray that while this was because of the text geared towards men and husbands, I pray that there'd even be great value found in your word today by the women in the room and how they can be coming alongside and encouraging this in their husband's life. Perhaps uh, women who are not yet married are now finding a better picture of the kind of person they should seek. Because I pray specifically that for those of us in the room, you've entrusted with a wife, that we would be men who are diligently studying her, seeking to live with her in an understanding way by showing honor to her, knowing that she is a co-recipient of your grace, at minimum, in the gift of marriage, at most, in the gift of salvation, and knowing that if we neglect this duty, it will have ramifications in our relationship with you. May we be men who take that seriously. And may we all, through the work of your spirit, leave this place being doers of your word rather than hearers of it only. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.